Thanks, Jordan. Morning, everyone. So uh, this is a great day. Say it with me. This is a great day. God's doing great things in me and through me today. This is a day of victory and breakthrough. You know, that, that is a statement of hope. That's built on hope. It's built on confidence in God's goodness. That God is at work, that he is good, that he is for us, and that we can trust him. And that, that's where we need to put our hope. That's where we need to put our confidence is in him. If you put your hope, if you put your confidence in the news cycle, then um, hope is going to be in short supply in your life, wouldn't you say? If all you, and, and especially if you don't even, if, if you don't just look at what's happening, but you look at the interpretation of what's happening, you're going to end up being filled with despair and anything but hope and confidence in God's goodness. But uh, God wants us to live with hope. In fact, here's a definition of hope. Hope says this. Hope says the future is going to be better than the present, and I have power to help make it so. Okay, the future is going to be better than the present, and I have power to help make it so. Hope says as well, whatever happens, I will thrive. Whatever happens in the future and in my life, I will thrive in my relationship with Jesus. Now, I got that from Steve Backlund, who goes on to say then, if I have to thrive as a Daniel or an Esther, then so be it. I will still thrive in my relationship with Jesus. Daniel was a young man as a teenager taken into captivity in another nation, taken away from his family and away from the nation that he, that he knew and loved, God's, God's uh, chosen people in God's chosen land, and forced to serve a pagan king. And yet he thrived. He thrived in his intimacy with God and in his relationship with God. And there's this foundational truth that each one of us have to rest in, and that is we will thrive no matter what happens. And ultimately, the future is going to be better than the present. And we do have power to help move it that direction. But in the interim, we're going to thrive no matter what we face, no matter what happens. I was listening to a guy named John Tyson uh, a couple of weeks ago. And if you don't know who John Tyson is, you should look him up, uh, find some of his podcasts and listen to them. Really, really insightful. But uh, he was talking about how there was a day in our culture where you could argue someone almost into the kingdom by, by giving them the evidences for the truth of the Bible, the evidences for the truth of who Jesus is and what he did for us. And, and through an apologetic approach, the, the other person may come to recognize the truth and get saved. And, and his point that he wanted to make was this, we're not in that day anymore. We're not in that time anymore where, it, where you can make a logical presentation and someone can agree with it and receive Jesus. We're in a day where everyone has their own truth. And so they, a person could say, well, yeah, I believe all of that's true, but I'm going to worship Buddha. And, and so what, what John Tyson's point was, was this. He said, what we have to do today is show the beauty of Jesus. We have to show how beautiful the Father is. 
We have to show how beautiful Jesus is, how beautiful the Holy Spirit is, how beautiful the work that God wants to do in our lives and in our world actually is, and that that's the thing that will persuade people today to come to Jesus. And as, as you look around at everything that's happening, last week I mentioned some of the horrific um, things that have been happening in our land, the shootings, and, 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 and all of the, the different, the, the, um, the war in the Ukraine, uh, the uh, sexual identity and, uh, and sexual dysphoria, gender dysphoria. And, and by the way, gender dysphoria is a real thing. Uh, they've been studying it for well over 100 years. And the studies that they have, the scientific studies they produce say it's very rare. But today it's being pushed as if that is the norm and everybody should deeply consider you know, the, whether they are actually not a male or a female. And, and so many different things, people that advocate for abortion right up to the moment of birth. And, and that baby is fully formed and ready to come out into the world. And there are people that want, to make, want it to have it be legal that you can either let that baby be born alive or you can kill it in the process of, the, of it being born. And it, when you look at all of that, it's it's kind of hard to think in terms of having peace. It can be hard to think in terms of having hope and having confidence in God. But when we see his beauty against the backdrop of all the darkness, when we see his goodness against the backdrop of all the, of all the evil that's happening around us, there's tremendous appeal in that appeal in our hearts to pursue him more deeply, and uh, appeal for the person that doesn't even know Jesus yet to come to him. But for us, what we have to do is walk in peace. We have to walk in hope. We have to walk in joy. And you see, fear and anxiety and anger are ugly. They are not beautiful. And if, if we walk in fear and anxiety, and particularly in anger, then we're not beautifying the gospel with our lives. We need to walk in hope and peace and joy. And when we do that, then it, 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 uh, it beautifies the gospel itself and shows people how beautiful God is. Now, God's intent for us is that we thrive. I've said that, but there's a verse in 3 John. There's only one chapter in 3 John, uh, but we'll still call it 3 John 1 and verse 2. Here's, what, here's what, the, uh, what John says in that verse. He says, Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. So this idea of prospering in your soul, that means that you live with hope and with joy and with peace and with faith and confidence in the goodness of God in spite of everything else around you. You maintain your trust in God in spite of everything around you. And it's that kind of person that uh, beautifies the gospel. Now, what I want to do today is to start by looking back at the Beatitudes. Uh, in, in, we're, we're studying the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, they, start, they came in right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And we took several weeks to go through the Beatitudes a couple of months ago. But today I want to go through all of the Beatitudes uh, at one time and show you how they're all connected because each one grows out of the former. And so you, you start off with this very first beatitude where Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, 
This is uh, Matthew 5 and verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, spiritual poverty, doesn't, it doesn't mean physical poverty. I mean, you could be poor physically and also experience spiritual poverty. But what, what this means is the person that recognizes I was born into a fallen world, into a fallen race, and I was born as a fallen person a fallen individual, and there's nothing I can do about that. I can't change, I, I can't change my place of birth. I can't change my parents. I can't look back at that and do that. And neither can I change the circumstances of my condition spiritually when I was born. But the person that really comes, into, come, comes face to face with that truth and responds to it with humility, then turns to God and says, God, help, I need you. And do you have an answer for this? And God says, yes, I do. I sent my son Jesus to die in your place so that you could be forgiven and get a new heart and get a new nature and not not have to deal with that old heart and that old nature any longer. And, And so spiritual poverty is what gives a person the kingdom of God. It says theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They get to enter into the kingdom of heaven and have this new heart. And they begin to see life through God's eyes. And what may have been painful before now is grievously painful because they recognize how what they've seen before that was, they knew was wrong, but now they see it and they realize how painful, it, the pain it causes God's heart. And they experience the pain of God's heart because they've received a new heart, a Jesus-style heart that is in, that's beating with the heart of God. And so what happens next? They, they begin to mourn. They experience mourning over the fallenness of the world, over the grief of the world, over all the loss and the pain and everything that the enemy does to disrupt, to disrupt and destroy humanity out of hatred for God. Satan hates God, and he hates anything that reminds him of God. And you and I, being made, created in the image of God, we remind Satan of God. And so he's, he's thrashing about violently trying to destroy humanity. That's the root of racism and, and a genocide and all of this evil that we see. But when the person has God's heart, they look around, and there's an actual grieving that they experience, a mourning it deep in the spirit and deep in the heart. And it's a temptation, I think, for people to say, something's got to be done about this. And you look at it, and you think, and your heart's impacted, and you mourn, and you grieve. Say, we got to do something. And to charge out without waiting to say, God, what are you doing? You see, Jesus mourned. He, he understood grief. But he also said, I only do what I see the Father doing. And, and so, what we need to recognize is that in our mourning and in our grief, we want to look for where the Father's working because what's the result for those who mourn? They are what? They're comforted. They're comforted. And so, the comfort, the peace that we get by coming to Jesus and by trusting in Him and, and, and seeing further and more deeply from His perspective and then having a heart that says, yes, I want to do something about this, but now it's a heart of peace. 
It's no longer a heart that is in turmoil over the grief of what we're seeing that we, wanna, that we think, think we need to get involved in, in correcting. And so the heart is comforted. And mourning is not something that you can live in forever. You cannot live in a perpetual state of mourning. And I think some Christians believe that that's almost like our duty to live in a perpetual state of mourning. But Jesus mourned, Jesus grieved, but he didn't live in a perpetual state of mourning and grief. In fact, Hebrews 1 says that Jesus was anointed, that God, God the Father anointed the Son with the spirit of gladness above, or the oil of gladness above all of his brethren. And so Jesus would have been the happiest guy in the whole crowd that he hung out with. And he had moments of mourning, but he didn't stay there. And the problem with staying in mourning long-term is that it's mourning and anger are closely related. We're gonna see that in a moment. But mourning and anger are closely tied together. And if you stay in grief and mourning for long, you'll end up looking for someone to blame. And, and, and that then generates anger. And we're gonna see that the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. But the, those who mourn are comforted. And in this whole process, they recognize it's not my strength. It's God's strength that's going to fix this. And it's me yielding to his strength. And, and, and it's me walking in his peace that will enable me to be used to help what's happening in the world today. And so it, that's meekness. He says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And so meekness doesn't mean that you sit, sit back and do nothing. You see, it's not like, well, I was all worked up about this, but then I got the peace of God, and I went back and watched my favorite TV show. I binged on Blue Bloods or whatever, whatever your TV show might be. It doesn't mean you get peace, and that means you don't have to do anything. No, when you have peace, then that means you can do something, <laughs> You can step in, and you can make a difference. And so the meek are the people that, are, that recognize that, and it's not by strength, it's not by power, but by by spirit, says the Lord. They recognize that God's their true source of strength. They're looking for where God's working, and they're, they're willing to sacrifice and to give themselves to whatever God's doing. And th this, um, th this whole thing comes down to, you know, I, I don't need to be in control myself because I trust God. I trust God with where history is, is going. And so the, the meek inherit the earth. And this is a pretty interesting phrase because when Adam and Eve were created, they were placed in a garden on the earth and they were going to live in that garden. And God told them, I want you to multiply. Now, I want you to fill the earth with image bearers. And so God wanted them to have children. And the second thing he says is, I want you to subdue the earth. And the third thing was rule over the earth. And so Adam and Eve were to have children. And had they not, if, if they hadn't sinned, what would have happened was this. They would have had children and more children and more children and their children, and I think in that world, it wouldn't have been a, like a problem to marry your sister or anything like that, would have had to happen. And the, just the, the more and more children, the garden would have expanded 
because there are more and more people to tend to the garden. And God's intent was that the Garden of Eden cover the whole earth. And so that's how they would have subdued the earth and then ruled over the earth. So that was their inheritance from God, and they gave it away. And they gave it away to, the, to God's enemy, Satan. And now Jesus says, look, the meek, those that realize their, their uh, power is in him, they are going to inherit the earth and walk in that inheritance and in that power. Now, the more you do that, the more, the more you walk in that inheritance, the more you see of God's righteousness and his way of life. And so it says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And the word righteous uh, is a term that is, sounds so religious to us, but all it really means is rightness. It means rightness. It means God's ways, not my ways. It means I'm ordering my life according to what God's word says. And so if, you know, if a, as a husband, I'm tempted to be impatient with my wife, or as a, as a wife, if I'm in, tempted to be impatient with my husband, but instead I give them grace and mercy, I'm acting righteously. That's, I'm doing it the right way, in other words. When it comes to handling my money, if, if I'm tempted to waste but instead, I say, no, nah, you know, I'm not going to spend on that. I don't need that because I need to give something to this person or I need to help them. Then I'm, I'm doing it the right way. I'm acting righteously. And so, as, as they hunger for God's righteousness, they hunger to be more and more the people that God created them to be. That's what that means. And so, to grow in God's righteousness, and it says, they will be filled now, that's, that is a passive statement on the part of the one who desires. It doesn't say those who desire righteousness, they're going to go out and they're going to do whatever they have to to find it. No, it says they'll be filled. God will fill them with his righteousness. And it, it is his righteousness that he puts in us. And it's his righteousness that we walk in. And the more of that that you experience, just the more and more you become amazed at the mercy of God, that everything's mercy. It's all mercy. It's all his mercy towards us. And so we become merciful as we become filled with more of his righteousness. And it goes on to say then that they will be shown mercy. So the one that shows mercy, gives mercy, gains greater mercy in their own life. And it, this mercy thing, what it means is that I stop judging other people. It means I stop looking at other people and, and, and thinking, what's wrong with them? You know, why, you know, why do they have to get in my way? You know, and, and, and I'm looking at their actions and looking at the things they say with a critical, cynical heart. Mercy doesn't do that. Mercy gives the benefit of the doubt. And 1 Corinthians 13 says, love believes all things. So love and mercy are connected because I'm going to have a heart that's going to have comp more confidence in people than, than the cynic. I'm not going to be cynical. And so this heart of compassion and mercy, and it impacts, just impacts the way you view others so that you end up with a pure heart. It says, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Now, Nathaniel in the Bible, when Jesus saw him, he said, behold, a man in whom is no guile. 
And so when you have a merciful heart, your heart purifies because you're not constantly judging others and critical of them and, and all that gunk that can so easily mess up the flow of the Spirit of God in you and through you that that's given up and a pure, you have a pure heart and you get to see God. You get to draw closer to God because of that. And isn't it interesting though But that the purity of heart, you get to see God, but to have a pure heart, you have to have a merciful heart. And that means towards other people. And, and so the way I relate to others around me impacts the purity of my heart, which impacts how clearly I see God. And so the pure in heart see God. And then he says, blessed are the peacemakers. This is like the ultimate, the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And when he's talking about being a peacemaker, um, first and foremost, you possess peace. You, you walk in peace. You know, we walk in hope and confidence in God's goodness, and the result of all of that is hearts filled with peace. And this idea of a non-anxious presence, uh, you probably have heard that frame, uh, phrase, a non-anxious presence is so important because when we carry anxiety with us, most people are tuned in to receiving anxiety. Most, most people have, their, their channel is tuned into anxiety. And so if I come around somebody with anxiety, my channel's already tuned that direction and I take on their anxiety. But when I come into the presence of someone who has a non-anxious presence and a non-anxious heart, then that then frees the person. It frees the, the other people around you to hear and to receive. And it frees you just to listen and to care and to, and to show love and concern and care for others. But the peacemaker is not necessarily the person who negotiates a peace treaty so much as the person who walks in peace and releases peace. You remember in Matthew 10, uh, again in Luke, Jesus is sending his uh, disciples out on a mission. And he says, uh, whatever house receives you, go into it and make a, make a, pronounce a blessing of peace on it. And he says, if the peace is received, stay there. If your peace is not received, then take it back and move on to another place. And so, see, Jesus is speaking of peace as a tangible spiritual and spiritual thing that you can actually release to other people and release into situations. And it's just so crucial for, for us to beautify the gospel and to show how beautiful God is that we actually come to this point of walking in peace and, and this non-anxious presence that enables us then to uh, walk into tough situations it enables us to bless others. And I want to say this. I, I hope to get to talk about children by the end of this message. But let me say this right now. What our children need is parents with a non-anxious presence. They need parents that parent out of peace rather than out of anxiety. And if I want to prepare them for the future so that they can say, I'm going to thrive no matter what happens. And if I want my children to be able to say, if I have to thrive as a Daniel, then I'll thrive as a Daniel. If I want that, then I've got to walk in peace and I've got to parent with peace. That doesn't mean that we, uh, that we're, that we are uh, reckless with our children. Uh, I mean, there are limits, no doubt. Now, our limits were, 
you, if, as long as you're, you're not going to fall onto cement, okay, climb the tree. If you, fall out, if you break a leg or an arm, that's okay. You can survive that. We want you to, be, we want you to adventure. We want you to trust. We want you to push the limits. But uh, if you're going to fall onto concrete, no, we're not going to let you do that. We're not going to let you play in traffic. And, and so you, you, you don't want to hover over them because hovering is, is out of fear. And if you're, trying to, if you're trying to rescue them from every problem and every pain they could ever experience in life, then what you're saying to them is the most important thing in life is that you don't experience any problems or pain. And the truth is they are going to experience problems and pain. And we have to have a non-anxious, peaceful heart, confident in God, presence when they do so that they learn then how when they face difficult things, how they, they learn then how to return to peace. You know, this thing happens and it knocks you off kilter and, and, and you're, you're struggling with it and you, you have to learn how and know how to return to the peace of God. And so, um, that this being a peacemaker is so, so, so crucial. But he says, then blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And, I, you know, he throws that in there at the end, and it just seems to me like up to number nine, everything sounds great. And who wouldn't love a, a number nine? Who wouldn't love a peacemaker? Why would anybody not love a peacemaker? Well, the truth is, there are going to be some who do love peacemakers, and there are going to be others who don't. And the thing is, a peacemaker releases light. When you're releasing peace, you're releasing light. And for some people, they don't, they, the, for some people, the light is beautiful and they're drawn to it. For others, the light is blinding because they like darkness. And Jesus said men, men, loved, dark, men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And so for some with humble hearts, they're willing to just come to the light and receive and, and, and every, all the blessings God has for them. For others, they, they fear, and that results in persecution. But we need, to, we need to recognize, and we need to teach our children, too, that Jesus didn't provide us easy and safe lives. He didn't, he didn't promise us easy and safe lives. And we need to recognize that, that, uh, that there, there's danger in this world, and there's beauty. There's both. And if I try to insulate my children from the danger, I'm afraid they'll never see the beauty. And so we teach them how to deal with the danger and how to return to peace when they face hardship, but we don't try to protect them overly, try to protect them from it. So I want to talk about two things then that are counter to this whole thing of being peacemakers, uh, anger and fear. And, and how they relate to our lives. But this whole idea of anger, dealing with anger, uh, Jesus himself was angry. In, in, Matthew, in Mark 3, 5, Mark chapter 3 and verse 5, says this. Uh, and what's happened here is, don't read it yet, please. What's happened here is the um, Pharisees have taken this man who has a withered hand and they put him right in a spot that they know Jesus will see him in the temple on the Sabbath, and they're, they're just like testing Jesus to see if Jesus will heal this guy so that they have something to accuse Jesus of. Because according to the Pharisaic law, you are not allowed to heal people on the Sabbath. 
You could do enough to, so that they didn't, get be, they didn't get worse, but you couldn't make them any better. And so they put this poor man there who's living with this, this malady, and it says, after looking around at them with anger, Jesus was experiencing anger, and he was grieved at their hardness of heart. You see, anger and grief, anger and mourning are connected. He said to them, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And as this was one of the things they had against Jesus, he healed on the Sabbath. But Jesus was angry. If Jesus was angry, then anger in and of itself is not necessarily sin. Okay, we have to recognize that. Now, I've read and I've believed for a lot of years that the root of anger is when, when someone does something that blocks something I want, a goal that I have, or a value that I have, I get angry. You know, for instance, if, if I have this excessive need for everyone to show me respect and deference, and I encounter someone who doesn't, I might be angry with them. Um, the motive of the anger can be either good or bad. Uh, for instance, if, you, if you're going to bed tonight, and as you're getting ready for bed, you see a big black ugly spider on the, your bedroom floor, and you reach for your bathroom, you reach for your slipper to kill it, but it runs under the bed before you can kill it. And if you're brave enough and you, you are looking under the bed for that spider, you can't see it, just sleep in the other bedroom, okay? That's an okay thing to be afraid of, all right? That's all right fear. But Otherwise, you know, we, we have to look at the motive of this all. And uh, that illustration was out of place there. That was the wrong one. <laughs> um, let's say you're driving down the street and someone ahead of you is driving slower than you want to drive and you're going to be late for an appointment. And how dare they drive just the speed limit? What are they thinking? You know, don't they know people have to get places? And you're mad at them because you don't want to be late. You have to evaluate, all right, how did I get into this position where I'm potentially going to be late? How did that happen? And it it probably happened because I wasn't planning very well. And then I need to ask myself, well, why do I fear being late? And that could be good reasons or bad reasons. But at any rate, I don't, I, I don't want to allow that to cause anger, but it often, it often does. So those would be questionable motives. But um, if I look around the world God created and I'm angry because of the shooting in Uvalde, that's another thing. That's, that's, that, that, that could be wrong motives, but it's very likely you're angry because Satan is messing God's world up. And, and that's a more righteous anger which Jesus had a righteous anger. But even righteous anger you can't live with for long. Even righteous anger, if you live with it for a long time, will become something destructive in your life. So Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Let's move on to Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. It says this. It says, in your anger do not sin, Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Okay, so even righteous anger, if you hold on to it for too long, can become an opportunity for the enemy 
to, uh, to in, invade and, and attack your life. And so you, you, Jesus didn't stay angry. He didn't live with anger. He didn't have this seething anger deep down inside that was about to explode at any moment. He lived with peace and with joy. And as I said earlier, he was the happiest guy in his whole, whole crowd of friends. But he was angry. And so we have to be careful not to, not to live with anger. It's, it's destructive. It can be destructive. Psalm 73, 21 and 22 tells us the result of living with anger. It says, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant like a brute beast before you. Okay, anger, bitterness, it messes up our ability to think. We, don't even, we can't even think clearly when we give in to anger long term. So when anger is fed by self-interest, when anger is held onto until it becomes um, bitterness or self-righteousness, because if I hold on to anger too long, then I'm going to justify why I'm holding on to this anger, and then I slip into self-righteousness. If that's the case, then I just need to repent and trust God with the situation. And uh, this may even be a case where, where I've been wronged by someone else, and so I have some justifiable reasons to be angry. But here's what 1 here's what, uh, Peter says. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Humble yourself. God I, I need to give this anger up. I've been holding on to it. I've been nursing it. And, and I think when it says, don't let, it, don't let the sun go down on your anger, I think there's something that is very destructive when we go to sleep angry. It, it, anger itself gets a deeper grip on our hearts and our minds when we do that. And so here he says, humble yourself. Cast your care upon him. Because he cares about you. So we can trust him. Now dealing with fear... And um, sometimes fears are legitimate. Remember the spider illustration. Okay. <laughs> Think of that right now. Especially this. Don't give in to the fears of the culture. Don't give in to the fears that you pick up as, as the news interprets world events for you. Don't accept their interpretation. Don't fall into the fears that the culture has. In fact, Isaiah 8, 12, and 13, the, um, Isaiah's writing, obviously God's speaking through Isaiah, and he says this to him. You are not to say, and Isaiah's passing this on to the Jewish people, you are not to say it's a conspiracy in regards to all, this, all that this people call a conspiracy. And you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it, it is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear. Now, conspiracies. There have been, world, there have been conspiracies throughout world history that topple governments. It's happened. It's just historical fact. But if you were living in that day, would you know it was there? I mean, if it's a good conspiracy, you're not going to know what's happening. At least I'm not, not at the level of involvement I have in that sort of thing. And, but today, with the internet, you can read what every 
person out there thinks about the whole thing and you can become inflamed into really believing this is a conspiracy, and maybe it is, who knows? You just can't know. But I can tell you this, it's, it's, you, get, you get sucked down a, a rabbit hole when you start thinking that way. It will suck the energy and life out of you and it will cause you to become bitter and fearful. And, and so that's, the, that's what's behind this. He's not saying there isn't any conspiracies. He's just saying that's not the thing to focus on. And do you know what we focus on? We focus on things we fear like the spiders. You know, when I go on our back porch and want to take a nap on the... Um, the um, porch furniture, I will always pull it out from the wall first and look for spiders <laughs> because I don't like spiders. And so what you fear, you focus on. And, and so what he's saying is, look, I'm your focus. I'm the one you focus on. When you get confused in life, when you're knocked off balance in life, look at me. Don't try to find something out there to blame it on. Look at me, trust in me. And when we do that, then then we're we're able to walk in peace and in confidence because uh, Jesus is gonna return someday. And when he does, things are gonna be made right. And we have confidence in that. And until that day happens, we trust him that we're here for a reason and that uh, we're gonna continue to do what he calls us to do. Now, recognize this, it takes courage to follow Jesus. I just wanna say, make this point, then I'm gonna move on to something else. It takes courage to follow Jesus. Not, and if, if I'm fearful, I'm, I'm not gonna be a good follower. When Peter saw Jesus, and there's a storm, he's in a little boat that's about to sink, Jesus is walking on the water, and Peter says, if it's really you, call to me and tell me to come to you. And Jesus, who, or whoever it is, says, come. And somehow Peter recognizes it really is Jesus. And he gets out of that boat and starts walking on top of the water towards Jesus. That took courage to do. And faith and courage work together. But that took real courage. And then he gets out there and he starts looking around and he sees the waves around him. And he, and he sees the, the, all the turmoil around him. And, and truthfully, he did take his eyes off Jesus when he did that. And he sinks into the water. And Jesus grabs him by the hand, pulls him back up on top of the water, and they walk back to the boat and get in the boat. Now, what Peter needed to do was to say, okay, I made a decision to get out of this boat and I'm gonna attach faith to that decision right now. Okay, I see these waves around me, but I made this decision, and I'm, a, I'm, I'm believing that this was the right decision. I am choosing to attach faith to this decision that I made, and, and I'm just, I'm gonna ignore that and trust him. And I'm not saying that I would have done that had I been in Peter's place. It, uh, you know, I'm sure that it, we would, would have all potentially responded the same way Peter did. But I, wanna, I just want to uh, say this, that with children, I've talked a little bit about that, but um, we, need to, we need to show them the beauty and the danger of the world. And in John 16, Jesus said this. He said, these things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. 
And so we know there's trouble in this world, and Jesus is not trying to deliver us from all of the trouble. But he, what he does promise us is strength and courage and power to thrive even in the midst of the trouble. And, as, and, and so the best thing I can do for my kids, I can't control the future. And someday I'm gonna be gone and they're gonna be left here. What I can do is teach them how to live with hope, how to live with, uh, with peace in my heart, how to live without anger, how to love other people. And when we do that, we're doing everything that we can, the very best we can to prepare them for the future. Now, I wanna share a verse with you. And what I would say is find promises from God when it comes to your children. I read through the book of Isaiah, a lot of good promises in Isaiah. And one that I ran across uh, 25 years ago that I brought back before the Lord many, many times over and over again is this. It's Isaiah 59, 21. And it said, as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth nor from the mouth of your offspring nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. I read that, and I just felt a rush of God's presence over me when I read that, and I almost fell out of the chair I was sitting in. And I just went back to that. And at moments when, you know, my kids are growing through their teenage years and, and um, tough times as a parent, I went back to that and said, God, this is a promise you gave me. I believe it, and I'm gonna rest, rest in that, and I'm gonna have peace because of this promise that you gave me. And when our son Brent went to Iraq, um, praying, praying for him before he left, God spoke to me and said, he's gonna be okay physically. Don't worry about him physically, but pray for his heart. And that was such a profound word that I had peace the whole time he was there but I prayed for his heart that he would not come back embittered against a whole part of the world's population or anything like that. And so with your children, find promises, pray those promises for them, share promises of God with them, and trust, trust them in, into God's hands. Would you stand with me, please? Prayer teams, would you make your way to the front? Father, I uh, just want to thank you that we can have peace. We, we can live with hope and joy and peace. And we can say, whatever happens, I'm going to thrive because I know Jesus. And my life is his. My life is committed to him. I pray bl the blessing of peace on every home here that is represented here today, on every family and every individual here today. The blessing of peace and hope and joy in Jesus' name. Amen.